Welcome! Thank you to the Cincinnati Zoo for having me. Man, this was such a cool experience. It's episodes like, I, I love this podcast so very much, but when things like this happen and I get some fun behind the scenes tours and stuff like that, um, man, I, I really am uh, living multiple dreams. I need to remember that when things get overwhelmed. Uh, behind the scenes, um, the stuff going on behind the curtain is often overwhelming and, and uh, discouraging and a, a lot of work. And then I get to do amazing stuff like this. So thank you, Cincinnati Zoo, for having me. And thank you guys for listening to this fantastic episode. Enjoy. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. First off, listeners already know I'm bad at intros anyway, and I'm a little nervous. There's a new word that I'm adding <laughs> to my lexicon today because I'm at the Cincinnati Zoo talking with a theriogynologist. <laughs> oh, man. Lindsay Van Sant is joining me. Pronounce the word for me. Theriogenologist. Theriogenologist. Oh, man, I am so close. such a thick-tongued Midwestern buffoon. Um, all right, theriogenologist. What is a theriogenologist? Okay, so the boring definition is a theriogenologist is a veterinarian who specializes in reproduction. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So that's what I do. Well, There's so a fun one, though. I... Um, you know, I've carved out a weird kind of niche for myself with my career, and sometimes I'm like, what am I even doing? And and I, I don't know, like, what world I'm creating for myself. And then all of every second-guessing myself that I, that I do is relieved in days like today, where I get to tour around the labs hearing about feces and sperm and egg and all, all the things that I love hearing and seeing and talking about. So you just gave me a grand tour of everything I that did. you have going on here. And so why don't you, actually, you brought up something right before we hit record that I'm, that I'm interested in. Give us first a little bit of a history of theriogenology. Did I know? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm yeah. so impressed with myself right now. Yeah. But so still, by the end, I'm hope, hoping maybe I'll say it confidently. Yeah, I thought you did that time. No. <laughs> okay, so theriogenology, as I mentioned, is the veterinary medicine version of reproduction. Right, so in humans, um, you could say andrology, but that means human male, or gynecology, which you tried to say, um, which is female, but, but those are both like human females. So therion is Greek for beast. So when you hear like, um, the example I always use is eutherian mammal, it's like the true beast, it has to do with the type of placenta, but therion is beast, and then genesis means to create or to make. So technically, my job title, is beast maker that is wonderful <laughs> yeah um that it when 
I'm skipping ahead so much That's, with this we question. We can do that. Let's just When go. are we actually going to start making some real fun stuff, like creating new species and stuff? We're a ways ah, off from that. Like, what do you think? Like 200 years from why now? Why do you want to make a new species? I don't know. It might be fun. I mean, <coughs> you do like um, uh, pumas and stuff, right? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like you could... You could throw some other parts on there. You could throw on like, uh, I don't know, some wings or something like that. I mean, I am actually in my head creating like the perfect cat. Tell me about it. Oh my gosh. Okay. Ooh, it's a lot of pressure. Okay. So it will have feet like a lynx because they have these beautiful like webby feet, you know, because they walk on the snow. It will have, oh gosh, I hope I can say this on your show, the penis of an ocelot. Yeah, we, <laughs> we, we can are, say that. We're pro penis. Okay, and okay. Oh, good, good. Show. I'm more, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, the female is good too. So, yeah, I should say the reproductive tract of an ocelot because there's this sort of bell shaped curve with cats where, you know, depending on their body size, an ocelot's not that large, 20, 30 pounds, but there's something about them where they have the most magnificent reproductive tracts, just very large for their size. So, the males. Um, I'm jumping ahead now too, um, have spines on their penis to help stimulate the female to ovulate. And they just have the most glorious spines. But when you get past them, everything gets smaller. And so an ocelot's just that perfect mix. So the reproductive tract of an ocelot, the tail of a snow leopard. So a big, beautiful, fluffy tail. And and you do know we're going back to talk about spine penis. Oh, we'll go back. We'll go back, yes. Oh, we'll be back. So yeah, the big, fluffy tail of like a snow leopard. And I mean, really, if you measure a snow leopard from like crown to rump, and then from like rump to end of tail, it's like just as long almost. They're beautiful and they're squishy and they're wonderful. So snow leopard tail, oh gosh, ears are hard, probably a caracal. Some one of those cats that have that wonderful like floofy on top of the ears, the attitude of a jaguar. And that's as far as I've gotten, so I'm not done. What is a jaguar's attitude? Oh my gosh, they're just all sass. So, where to start with jaguars? So, spoiler alert, these are my favorite cats. These are by far my favorite cat. Um, where to start? Okay, so most cats, if you think about it, most cats either eat like non-predator type animals or they eat much smaller predators, like babies of others or whatever. Jaguars will eat like full-grown caiman. So they will actually jump in the water and pull one of these giant things out, still alive, and just take it to shore and finish its job. Hmm. Like, there's no other cat that does anything like that. That's amazing. Don't they don't they go like up in a tree with it, or is that something? You're thinking else of leopard. Thinking leopards, leopards like the trees. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, to the uninitiated person, too, leopards and jaguars look similarish, right? They mm-hmm. both have that sort of beautiful tan color. Yeah, such a color. rookie mistake. I know. Well, here I'll teach you the difference. Okay. So. They both have that rosette pattern. Jaguars have a dot in the middle. Leopards don't, but really, jaguars are just beefier. They're like the chunky, chunky cats. Like, they're just shorter to the ground. They weigh more than leopards. Um, I'm jumping ahead again. So, how we collect sperm is electroejaculation, and it's all about the size of the probe. And jaguars take a much larger probe than leopards, which always surprises people. Can we unpack electro? Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> well, you saw that question yeah, coming. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so with cats, with wild cats, as you can imagine, getting a sperm sample is not as simple as it is with the domestic animal. So one, they're completely anesthetized, usually. Um, if we're gonna collect this way. And then we do what's called electro ejaculation. So 
ejaculation is like any other reflex. Nerves involved, it starts down wherever the organ of interest is, goes up to the brain, comes back, talks to itself, does its thing. But nerves are just you know, electrical stimuli. Mm -hmm. And the pudendal nerve runs really close along the rectum. So we have these probes, they go in the rectum, they have these little electrodes, you hook it up to a box, box you turn up, it's really, really low voltage. The highest I've ever gone is six volts. That's like nothing. <laughs> and it's well lubricated. And again, the cat <laughs> is on a, the cat is on a surgical plane of anesthesia. Um, and that's how we collect <laughs> sperm. Well, people, it, it is a little. People get a little weird about People get a little weird. And I will genitals. say it was actually invented. Well, not the genitals, the rectum. Oh, right. Sorry. I wouldn't do that My to bad. the genitals. Yeah. Well, it was invented in humans for like paraplegics who wanted to have children. So it's a nice way you can continually collect samples and not have to do surgery. Hmm. Um, so it was invented in humans, and I will say, it's not my cup of tea, but there are subsects of humans who just do it for fun. So that's always my intro when like people see it, and huh. I can see people are a little disturbed at the idea. But again, well, it, I'm I would say intrigued. Intrigued. We didn't even get that part of the use. tour. Yeah. We'll have a post tour. We'll yeah, go back. yeah, yeah. We'll okay. Go back. Well. Yeah. I, I'm gonna have to put a, a little thing on the on the outro of this. Yeah. I'll I'll give a review of how it was. Yeah. After I, I mean, oh, are we gonna? I thought I was just gonna I'm show just you. Kidding. I don't yeah, know. I feel just, like I feel well, like. Well, it depends on. It, I don't know. You might have to check with the boss or something. I don't know what the rules are it's around fine. here. It's fine. <laughs> we only have rules with the animals. The humans are whatever. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, this is uh, this is getting more and more interesting by the moment. So you electrically stimulate, and then they just boom. Boom. Yeah. So it's um, it's sort of operator specific. You kind of learn. You sort of do a slow up, hmm. hold, quick down. That's what I find works. And we'll do sort of sets. So you start at only one volt, and you do ten, and then you go to two, and then you go to three, and then you give them a five minute break. And by then, hopefully, you've got sperm, and you go and you process, and the cat gets a break. Then you come back and we'll generally do about three sets like that. And we go up in voltage, kind of let the Whoa. cat tell you like where he wants, you know, where he's happy. So what we're watching. So, so hold on. So yeah. the refractory period, this is like five minutes. Yeah, just give him a little break. Are you impressed that I know about the refractory yes. period? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I didn't want to seem surprised. I just wanted to, you know, we're on this level where I just assume you know that. So. But five minutes is crazy. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, what's even the purpose of it? I mean, in the wild, are they pounding it out that fast? Oh, uh, you know, probably. I don't think they, they don't, they're kind of functional hmm. more than loving, I would say. It's sort of a fast thing. It's basically long enough just to let the female know it's up. The female doesn't seem to enjoy it. That's actually how we know if we have a good breeding is it's when the female gets really mad and basically throws the male off of her at the end. It's like, oh, that was good. If it's really gentle, you're like, nope. We actually have a snow leopard pair here who's um, been together six breeding seasons, and Nubo, our male, just can't quite figure out where it's supposed to go. Oh. So it's you know you yeah. watch, and it's very sweet. They spend a lot of time together, and they spoon, and then they try to breed, and it just it just goes on and on, and she never <laughs> has a reaction. So oh yeah. man, I feel like yeah. that's my spirit animal. <laughs> Um, <laughs> we should go meet Nubo. <laughs> that sounds terrific. Yes. So, so then, how do you, how do you, how are you collecting 
the so you're stimulating and then what's the is that where you use the artificial vaginas that mm, you showed me that is not so the artificial vagina would be in lieu of doing this in that case the male is awake and it's just a collection technique okay so in this case we just have collection cups basically so um usually one person is running the box with the voltage and actually running the you know up and down how fast and then another person is both running that probe in the rectum because it's all about to the depth the depth and the location so we're actually also watching the feet i have an obsession with cat feet and when you do this their back legs react and you're looking for those toes to spread both legs to extend evenly and that's that you're in the right spot and so while that's happening you also have a collection cup on their penis and so then you're kind of watching that and it almost sounds like a weather report because it's like, oh, it's really, you know, you want it really cloudy because that means there's lots of cells. Mm. But then you worry about urination, you know, oh no, you know, it's yellow or it's really clear. I think we've got everything, but it's this whole communication and everybody's kind of doing their part to keep him happy. Hmm. And is he anesthetized? Yeah, like I said, completely anesthetized, like surgical plane of anesthesia. One, because these Hmm. are wild animals. Um, I will say in domestic animals, for example, in the cattle industry, they will electroejaculate while they're awake. But I think the food animal industry has sort of slightly different standards um, than wildlife. Um, There are, there, so let's see. So that's one way, going back to the artificial vagina, that's what's nice about that technique is that the animal is awake and it's voluntary, right? So if cats, they will mount, um, we use teaser females. So we will use a female who's in estrus. Um, in horses, it can either again be an, an, another mare. They actually have a barrel that you can train stallions to and they call it the phantom mare, which I think is a fantastic word for a barrel with like hooks for the male to like kind of grab onto with his, mm. I'm said paws because I live in such a cat world with his hooves. Um, and sometimes with cattle, if they're not doing electroejaculation, um, they will have, in this case, it's often steers. So males who've been castrated because the females can't stand that long and hold males all day. So they'll have the bulls mount these steers and then they can collect them that way too. So they can do it that way as well. Hmm. So many choices. So let's talk about um, penis spines. Let's talk bit. about penis spines. I have I so many questions in my head right now, but that, that one's going to be at the forefront <laughs> okay, until, it's, until that loop is closed. Okay. So backing up, cats are typically what we call induced ovulators. So uh, as opposed to humans or most mammals, right? Like I'll just, you know, most mammals, they go through estrocycles. And with each estrocycle, I can't say the word, estrocycle, they'll ovulate, irrespective of being around a male or having sex or any of that. But then certain animals are induced ovulators, meaning they will only ovulate if whatever the stimulus is there for that species. Mm -hmm. So in cats, it's tactile. For cats, it's the actual act of having sex. It's the actual act of that penis getting inside the female. And we also think probably the scruffing, the males often scruff the females, kind of all of that together. And they've done studies and they show the more that a female is bred by a male, the more that reproductive hormone, luteinizing hormone, LH, responsible for ovulation, it goes up and up and up. And so, the spines, we believe, are there just sort of as an extra hello. I'm mm. doing this type of thing. And it might have been like an like a sexual evolution type of situation where a male with bigger spines would get a better response, so his more likely to succeed. Probably. But what's then it gets confusing. 
Sorry, go ahead. You seem like you have a thought. I do have a thought. You have many thoughts. I mean, when you say spines, it sounds like this sounds like a painful thing. I mean, again, it's with cats. The females are a little they get mad at the end. Like they that's how you kind of know the male's kind of successful in what he's trying to do, because you hear the females doth protest. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, hmm. Well, because isn't there don't wolves have some sort of a locking oh yes mechanism what what is that the copulatory lock yeah so uh dogs do it too domestic dogs so in that case um when dogs or wolves have sex they don't have it you know when people talk about doggy style that's so not doggy style they're actually like heads facing away you know like butt to butt and so the male gets on the female then he kind of turns around and yeah his penis is engorged with blood and so the only way He's coming out of her. Yeah. Is after he finishes. I know. I saw this horrifying video one time <laughs> of like one one of the one of like the from another pack, uh, a male like snuck in yeah. and got locked in with a female, and then that that pack caught him doing it. Yeah. And came to chase, and then he couldn't get out. He was trying to run yeah. away, and, and he's like dragging right. this female by his. <laughs> so, and he's like biting he was like almost trying to like bite his member off yeah, to get away from yeah because i mean it's, like gonna it's kill him. it makes sense because usually it would be right like your alpha pair but everyone's always trying to get to be the alpha so mm-hmm. it's a great way for you and your partner to sort of literally have each other's back while you're at your most vulnerable while you're having sex so the male and the female can be watching versus if it was the way we always think about it where the male just mounts her from behind they're both looking the same direction so in that sense it makes them less vulnerable but yeah if you're trying to run that is not the position to be in yeah it's like a three-legged race or something like that (laughs) (laughs) um so many images um yeah no it's funny so i um you know i grew up in the midwest i grew up in missouri and i grew up working at this vet clinic in very middle of america and people don't know the benefits of spaying and neutering their pets people let their intact animals run we got so many phone calls about how someone's dog was stuck to someone else's dog and they didn't know why and so (laughs) they just call my dog is stuck to this dog i don't understand (laughs) Oh. Got into some glue or something yeah. is what they thought. Right. So so the spine has nothing to do with that. No, it doesn't lock in. No, good question, but no, different mechanism. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, it sounds so painful. So Well, and here's where it gets confusing too. So not all cats are induced ovulators. Even with domestic cats, it seems like with age, especially with living, like with females that live together, um, that we do see spontaneous ovulation. And then it's different species will vary. Some cats are only, some of our uh, wildcat species are only induced ovulators. Some spontaneously ovulate all the time. So it kind of just depends on the species. And it would be great if the size of the spines would work out to be all the spiny cats, you know, only spontaneously or only are induced ovulators, right? That would make sense. So if they have big spines, then that probably is a species that needs to be induced. And if they don't have spines, that they're probably spontaneous, but it doesn't exactly work out that way. So that would be a nice. Um, is end. the is the lion um, thing true that, you, that you'll hear about with the, uh, you know, the, the new rival alpha male or whatever, eating a cub and that induces um, ovulation when, once the, uh, so the mother has cubs mm-hmm. and then that father gets chased off there's a new alpha in there mm-hmm. that alpha 
kills the cubs right upon seeing this the female's like all right well i guess i better ovulate now well it's probably more that lactation it's not a hundred percent effective as contraception but it tends to prevent cycling because you know the body understands that they're feeding and nourishing that cub so once that cub goes away that that need for milk it probably stimulates them to go back i don't know if seeing it does but i do know one fun (laughs) interesting thing about lions if a female is still pregnant and a new male comes in she will breed with that male, even if she's gonna give birth in four days. And it works sometimes, where the male's like, look at my new baby I just made. Ah, so the male, sneaky. yeah, I know, I know, isn't that great? Mm, yeah. So I know they do that sometimes, hmm. yeah. Very smart. Um, so for just so people have a sense of uh, the importance of a lot of this, because it's wonderful to talk about penis spines it is. and we could do that all electrocuting ejaculates <laughs> and all, all this bizarre stuff and we're gonna have more fun but i do want people to know kind of the uh, more of the gravity of some of this what what is uh, how does what you do um influence kind of the conservation efforts and what what is the importance of what you do on that scale sure so what we've been talking about in you know fun ways mostly the male side but um, semen collection is part of this bigger toolbox assisted reproductive technologies or art so that's a part of it is collecting the sperm freezing the sperm creating these cryobanks um, and doing artificial insemination so all of this happens because our cat populations um, generally most of our cats are threatened to some degree in the wild. It depends on the cat. Um, and so often the cause is loss of habitat, fragmentation of habitat. So what happens is we have these populations and they get really isolated. And genetically they get isolated from each other. So you start to see inbreeding and you start to see reduction in genetic variability. Now, we also have our populations in zoos. Um, but we have a lot of the same issues in our zoos and that we typically have low founder numbers, meaning there weren't a lot of individuals to start the population. So we have low founder numbers. We typically don't have very large populations in zoos either. And we're seeing a lot of natural breeding issues even in zoos. And so using these tools is one way to get around that. So we can collect sperm from a male and then artificially inseminate the female. So this could be due to cats not getting along. Just like in humans, cats can decide they don't like their partners. Um, and you can imagine it can be really scary if you're trying to introduce you know, two lions to each other. Or, you know, No matter what, all of our species have teeth and claws and attitudes. And so we have had examples where they've killed, you know, potential mates have killed each other because of that. Mm. Sometimes it can be a physical abnormality. Um, sometimes we have animals that probably would have died in the wild, but because we have good veterinary care, we can provide them that care, they survive longer. We actually have a female that due to a previous injury was missing a front leg egg um so she can't really physically stand to be bred by a male but she would absolutely make a good mom so sometimes there's physical reasons that two partners can't get together so we can deal with that or thinking even bigger once we freeze that sperm we can move these genetics across space so rather than you know let's say we do have a pair that does really well together now they've bred now they have offspring so really what we need is to move them around and get new partners but you could just as well collect that sperm, freeze it, and then transport the sperm as opposed to the animal hundreds and thousands of miles, and then just put that sperm into a female. Now we don't have to worry about the stress of transporting an animal. We don't have to worry about, you know, 
you've been around the zoo a lot lately. You can see our keepers do amazing work now with like operant conditioning and they build these really special relationships with their animals. So it's really hard on everybody when that animal has to leave and there's reasons we do it and there's good reasons to do it, but it's hard. So if we can just collect sperm, transport the sperm, that's great. Or thinking about the wild populations. I could go collect sperm from a wild male and bring it back to our population. Or I can take sperm from our, sometimes our, zoo populations are actually healthier than the wild populations. So I can collect sperm from an animal in our zoo and inseminate a female in the wild. So you can move genetics both ways and then you can also move it over time, right? So even an individual that died 50 years ago, if I have his sperm, I can still have him be part of the population. So it gives you a lot more flexibility in how to manage a population because ultimately population is all about the genetic health, maintaining that genetic diversity. So that's what we do, (laughs) that's the dream. So, uh, man, so many questions. All right. So, first of all, what species are hardest to get to breed on the match? Because I was talking with um, Christina Gorsuch, mm-hmm. who uh, she was on the last episode that we did, uh, past episode of the from the Cincinnati Zoo, and she did stand up science. We were hanging out at the bar afterwards, and she was talking about um, how Fiona, the famous Fiona the hippo, was created, and she said that. Her mom, I'm forgetting her name. BB. BB was introduced to a male, like they stuck a male in there, and by their calculations, like that day, they must have got it on. And so it doesn't seem like there's much work there, but then you were, you were telling me beforehand, polar bears are notoriously difficult to get to breed or polar yeah getting them to breed or having them be successful yeah for sure i think oh so they'll try they're sometimes yeah but we've had issues even here at our zoo um our pair uh did not care for each other at all the first year they were put together and then something happened in the last year they seemed to be very much in love i Hmm. think the big line difference often is what they eat right so i think when you're putting herbivores together it's a lot less scary although i say that but like hippos are kind of a scary one they're big usually they're smaller but I think it's carnivores that we seem to have a lot of issues with because they don't always use their words when they don't like each other you know Mm -hmm. they injure each other and for us too it's tough because a lot of our carnivores are solitary in the wild and so it's hard to put them in the environment that we have it's hard to decide do we keep them together all the time do we try to only put them together you know when it's that time of the month how do you how do you make that decision? And our snow leopard pair, for example, love each other all the time. They're stupid in love and they spend all day long together. But a lot of cats don't wanna be around each other unless it's that right time for the female. So, I mean, I can speak mostly with cats are my experience and they're just tough. Like some are better than others, but ultimately it seems like they all seem to have issues and just it's a management issue of trying to decide how do you put them together, how long, do you wait before you give up? It's a challenge. Hmm. Um, so, when you're when you're freezing sperm, isn't there an issue with when you freeze a thing? Isn't it changing the molecular structure? So it's kind of ripping apart cells. Yeah. And so, how do you how do you freeze sperm so that it doesn't all so it doesn't do rip that? Apart? I mean, it it sounds because like, isn't it kind of the same as almost putting it in like a meat grinder or something like that in a, Basically, in a way. Basically, yeah. Like, like the idea of, of uh, 
like people trying to cryogenically freeze themselves or whatever. Oh, that's it's nonsense. Like, you like might as well just man. put yourself yeah. in a meat grinder, yes. put it in a can, stick it in a freezer, and hope that one day they find a cure for being right. put through a meat grinder. Right, exactly. Um, yeah. <laughs> but how is that? How is the same thing not happening with sperm? Well, so you use cryoprotectants, and actually it's a really fun story. Um, we didn't really cryopreserve much of anything before. I believe it was the 1950s, and they were trying to freeze bull sperm. And um, the story is whoever was in the lab doing it, and they they used the wrong thing. They accidentally grabbed, gl- grabbed glycerol when they meant to grab something else, but then that's what seemed to work really well. So basically cryoprotectants... Um, what they typically do is you're taking the moisture out of the cell because what ultimately kills the sperm or kills the thing is the ice crystals. So as you're freezing and water turns from a, from a liquid to a solid, it can get very sharp and you have these shearing injuries and things can explode and things can shrink. But that's really most of the injury. So cryoprotectants basically just do a job of taking that moisture out to try to minimize those ice crystal formation. So mm. you're still damaging it um, but to a lesser degree. And then we have other proteins that seem to kind of help make like the phospholipid layer happier um, type of thing, kind of help it deal with these changes, help it deal as it becomes more rigid. But um, we're still actually trying to figure out how to freeze cat sperm very well, to be honest. So you let me know hmm. Well, yeah, <laughs> how it- you freeze sperm because we're still trying cats. Hoofstock, again, I, I say this with the utmost respect for my hoofstock scientist friends, but hoofstock sperm, for whatever reason, tends to freeze so much better than carnivore sperm in general. I don't know why. Hmm. They'll be like, oh, only 70% modal when I thawed. I'm like, really? Mine was 10%. Like the number, the percent of sperm that are still moving after you do it. Ah. So it's like, that's one of the sort of parameters when you're looking at sperm and sort of talking about it is, analyzing it is the percent modal. So yeah, these hoofstock people will be like, only 70%. Mine wasn't 70 before I froze it. <laughs> yeah, so that is, what is the difference in different species and then even in individuals in just how, um, what's the word you use, modal? Modal, yeah. Uh, um, given sperm is because not all sperm in all species is meant for fertilization is my understanding, right? I, I think some of it is, some of it has some weird like sperm competition component and there's like weird oh, like Oh, there's like cool, there's like super cool like rodent sperm that does, yeah, does like the conglomerates and like the sperm train and all that kind of yeah. fun stuff. Cats have any? Cats, not to my knowledge. That would be kind of cool, but I think they're very much like their, their makers. They're kind of solitary, man. They're hmm. on their own. Okay. Um, so in theory, each sperm, I think, is in its mind meant to do that, in its little sperm mind. As I mentioned, uh, cat sperm have a lot of morphological abnormalities, some of which we sort of classify in this primary, secondary, and it's somewhat dependent on where on the sperm has the abnormality of what we classify it as. But that's somewhat arbitrary, or not arbitrary because we have a system, but I think a little artificial in how we assign significance to these abnormalities and some basically some will definitely prevent a sperm from getting there like some their tails are super bent and like that's where motility comes from it's not going to go anywhere and some you know you have a funny looking head and you're like is that going to have good dna so um i'm totally going off on a sidetrack here what was the no i'm very interested in that because once you once you do freeze it even if it is modal if it's if is it is it ever like damaged in a way that oh, is yes. going to lead to some consequences? Oh, for sure. Uh, I, because I imagine the fresher, the better, probably natural yes. b- 
breeding in an ideal world uh, mm-hmm. where you know uh, genetic pairing uh, you could do whatever you wanted the, that would be the gold standard yes, right and absolutely. and the freezing is a is the compromise to make things work yes um so what kinds of consequences are so what once once there is fertilization is there any problems like later on that that like the offspring have more health issues or anything like that or is it just um, a, or is it just a matter of getting to the fertilization often in the first i place? think it's a question of getting to the fertilization for sure i think most of the damage i mean and again it, it varies it seems like cats different species have different cryosensitivities often though the acrosome is damaged the acrosome is what sits like on top of the sperm head it's a little cap of like enzymes and that's needed once it gets to the egg to sort of like chew through all the sticky cells on the outside of the egg so that often gets damaged in the freezing process so without that it doesn't really have a mechanism to like even get to the egg to penetrate it so that's an issue um, I think there's a lot going on even deeper than that. It's just for us, acrosome is something we can stay in for and see. Often we'll see some, there's some morphological changes we see, like again, bent tails, broken off tails, that kind of stuff. A lot of times though, if it is like an expansion, you know, type of injury, sometimes it won't look that different post. It's whatever damage we've done, it sort of looks normal afterwards. But functionally, we can damage the DNA, damage the mitochondria, all that stuff. So almost, without a doubt when you freeze cat sperm and thaw it rule of thumb is you lose about 50 percent some it's not always true and some males tend to do better than others like individuals in the same species some species tend to do better but overall you're killing about half of it Mm. just when you freeze it and thaw it like it won't even move like that's and the stuff that does move even if the motility looks nice it's still the ability for it to fertilize an egg has been compromised and i don't know that we've really figured out why like we haven't like nailed down that this is what we did to it. We just know after thawing it, it doesn't have that same capability. You know, it might look nice for all the tests we have. Hmm. The ultimate test of actually fertilizing the egg, I can't do. So how'd you get into the sperm game? How do you get into the sperm game? Um, I always wanted to do veterinary medicine. Mm-hmm. I knew that. Um, and I always wanted to do wildlife. But... This is why everyone should go and like try out the thing you want to do. I thought I wanted to be like a zoo veterinarian, so a veterinarian that you know takes care of all the animals at the zoo. And then I went all the way to South Africa when I was in vet school to the Johannesburg Zoo to do like a preceptorship. And I realized that you don't get actually do that much with mammals. It's a lot of reptiles and amphibians and birds. And I realized I don't really like those as much. My joke is always if it doesn't have boobs and it doesn't have hair, I'm not really interested, right? Because that's like your mammal features is hair and breasts, hence mammary, mammals, that's where that comes from. Yeah. So that's always the joke is I'm like, doesn't have boobs, doesn't have hair, I don't want to work on it. So now so I'm- even like dolphins and- uh, uh, I'm yeah, sure they have like they, little modified like hair little, things. I'm sure there's some loophole yeah, that I can tell you they have little tiny hair. They do. And like yeah. elephants that you wouldn't, you wouldn't think that, but they have oh, for like, sure, uh, yeah. like the babies have like their- yeah redheaded adorable yes, yes, hair but yes so hmm. yeah boobs and hair all right so i like that i guess <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i just grew up with mammals i didn't grow up with anything else so it's a kind of a steep learning curve and yeah um so i went i still was like wildlife and i'm already doing this whole veterinary thing so got to figure out how to work that into it but i always just found reproductive physiology like super interesting um i just I don't know. I had a bunch of different classes during my undergraduate work 
And in particular, my animal sciences class, I had a professor, Dr. Mike Smith, and he does like dairy cattle reproduction. And they have that figured out so well. But just how cool it is, how the hormones and the ovary and the uterus and the behavior, it all just comes together. You know, it's all these things happening, but you can kind of pictorially line them all up together. And I just think it's really beautiful. So I actually liked the female side more first, but now I'm, yeah, sperm is just, sperm is just fun. If you're gonna work with the female, you have to work with the male. And I think the first time you get to look at sperm under a microscope, you're like, yeah, I could do this. I could do this for, for a living. So somewhere in there, I found this job. So how, when you're doing the pairing, are you going through papers determining where they're from or are you just doing the genetic testing these days lucky for me that's not as much that's not my forte for sure and that's not really my job so all um, of the cats that we manage in the um, aza zoos um, there's this thing called a tag a taxon advisory group so for all the felids again we have 18 species of cats that we actively manage in our zoos um, they fall under this umbrella and so this is a group of folks veterinarians researchers keepers curators nutritionists um i'm sure i missed a major group that i'm going to find out about later that i didn't say so and so but um all these people get together these experts and um, sort of advise. And then each of these species has their own species survival plan or SSP. And so the SSPs are the ones that get together and look at genetic pairings and mean kinship. So part of it is just looking at the relatedness. And that's a challenge too, because when we have founders, when we bring these animals into these populations, and we try not to do that anymore. Um, the only reason we're gonna bring an animal in from the wild anymore is only because if they have some sort of injury or reason they can't stay in the wild. Otherwise, again, we try to use assisted reproduction. But we know at some point, animals were brought in from the wild for these populations. And we assume they're not related, and that may or may not be true. But then you go through and you just basically look at the relatedness, and there's computer programs, um, and you come up with these mean kinship values. And it's interesting because once a pair breeds, right, they're represented. So they tend to kind of fall to the bottom of the priorities, which is unfortunate because they clearly know what they're doing. And so as an animal gets older and he or she hasn't bred, they become more and more genetically valuable. And so that's the challenge that we're getting into is now we have these animals that are past their reproductive prime that we really need to breed but either they've never been in a breeding situation or they've never been successful. And that's what unfortunate about my job is those are often the cases I get. I'm not getting to try these young fertile females, you know, the ideal candidate, because we're still very experimental. We're still very much, how do we make this work in each species? But we're also trying to man help manage these populations. So we get the call, oh, we've got this 10 year old female who's never bred, but she's like super important. Great, let me just, you know, try this. Thing that's never worked before on your 10 year old cat and let me see how I do with that <laughs> so that's the challenge so how often do you get to uh travel for work do you get to a lot yeah mm -hmm. what do you do what's that involve so we work here at Cincinnati Zoo at Crew. um I haven't even said what Crew is yet maybe I should say that <laughs> yeah why not why not right now at this moment so within I work at the Cincinnati Zoo and Botanical Garden but specifically I work um, in our research department, which is the Center for Conservation and Research of Endangered Wildlife, CREW. So at CREW, we focus on a few cat species. I say a few. Um, we have five small cats. So sand cat, black-footed cat, palace cat, fishing cat, and ocelot. 
And then I also focus on my medium cats, so jaguars, snow leopards, and armor leopards. So I say all of that in front to say that then what happens is I work with the SSPs to determine which of these cats are high priority. And so we'll go around and collect sperm, we'll electro-ejaculate the males, freeze the sperm, and then we'll also collect sperm to do artificial inseminations. So again, it's working with these SSPs and they identify who are these valuable animals. So then I travel to the zoos and apply these different techniques depending on what is sort of prioritized and what's needed. Hmm. And so how often are you doing that? I probably travel on average one week, at least one week a month I'm traveling. It depends. Sometimes we try we try to be things as cheap as possible. So often we'll do driving trips. So you sort of do these piggybacks where you go from zoo to zoo to zoo to zoo. Um, and we have had these really long drives because the, you know, fresh sperm, doing an artificial insemination with fresh sperm is much more likely to be successful than frozen sperm. So often, even if a male is like six hours away from a female, I will go collect that sperm and then I will drive those painful six hours and then we'll start the artificial insemination basically as soon as I get there. So it's a lot of driving. So it tends to be these very long road trips. We do a little loop in Texas that's about two weeks long in the fall. So it just depends. Uh, How predominant is artificial insemination in zoos today? Probably depends on the species. Um, I don't know that it's a major, I'm trying to think if there's any examples that it would be a major part of a breeding program. I think honestly, it doesn't matter the species you're talking about, it's still not a major component, Hmm. even for us. And we prefer, like our preference is for these cats to breed naturally. We're kind of there to help after the fact. Like we're kind of like try your cats together if not us. So even, even for cats, I'd love to say, oh, it's, it's you know totally part of how we manage it. The one exception is probably our ocelot population. I think it's a third of all of the ocelots in our zoo population is either the direct or indirect result of assisted reproduction. So either they were directly produced from AI or they are the offspring of animals that were produced by AI. So that's pretty cool, a third of the whole population, but that's the only cat example I can think of, and off the top of my head, I can't think of any other non-cat species. And you just had the first jaguar, right? Yes, very nice lead in there. Yeah, so jaguars, um, we were talking about how sassy they are earlier. They're just as sassy reproductively, and so they have, um, they have been elusive. So we have produced, and this is the royal we, this is like the whole scientific community. The other kind of big cats that we talk about, all of those other big cats, so like lions and tigers and leopards, um, puma, cheetah, I'm sure there's one I'm forgetting. Um, They've all had offspring successfully produced from artificial insemination. And the jaguar, very much like a jaguar, was the holdout. So as I've already mentioned, it's my favorite cat. It was one of the first projects I started um, when I came to crew. And it was, it took three years three years, um, several rounds of studies, several rounds of just looking at the literature, thinking about what do we do in other cats, what might work, what might not work. Um, And yeah, a very stepwise, deliberate scientific process to get us there. So yeah, uh, it was just this February. Do people get confused when you talk about AI? (laughs) Like they think I'm talking about artificial intelligence. Yeah. Yeah. Similarly, um, you know, back in the day, the IT people were the AV guys. So see, I'm bringing it back to artificial vagina. Ah. So they'd always be like, go talk to the AV guy. And I'm like, oh, I 
will go talk to the AAV <laughs> guy. He sounds cool. So I do find, I for me, AI, it's just natural. That's artificial insemination. But yeah, people do get confused. We all have our own like acronyms, right? So. All right. So I, we already kind of touched on it a little bit, but I have my guest each week plug a charity of their choice. Yes. And I imagine you're plugging crew. Crew. Yes. Yes. So we do get, we are lucky that we are housed at the Cincinnati Zoo. Um, They do give us some money for operating budget, but largely we operate out of grants and gifts and um, donations. So yes, please give us money. Awesome. (laughs) How do they do that? Oh, you know, you, yeah, we have a website. I, um, I assume we can put it'll that be on, on the, for you. Yep, it'll be on go, the Here We Are so podcast. So go to the Here We Are website. podcast and that's yep. where you'll find the link. Yeah, I think it's like, I won't even say because I'll say the wrong thing and everyone will go the wrong way. So hmm. go on the website. It's secure. Terrific. Got a question? Um, <laughs> so what is, the, uh, what is the future of artificial insemination? Oh gosh, the future. That's a great question. Um, Well, what we're working towards is, for example, even in Jaguar, we made one cub. So the dream is, how do we make this reliable? How do we make this repeatable? How do we go in knowing we have a 30% chance, a 50% chance? So that's the charge, is taking the information we have and really honing down on what are these hormone protocols? How do we make it better? And once we can do that, then we need to get good and reliable with frozen sperm. So that's the future. Okay. I hope. Uh, what what species are haven't been uh, artificially inseminated yet, but are are closest? What's on the what's on the? Oh, horizon? you mean like successfully? Yeah. Like, um, I would say so. I mentioned our five small cat species. We've never made a black-footed cat baby. And actually, here's a fun fact: for small cats, we don't call them cubs; we call them kittens. We've never made a black-footed cat kitten from artificial insemination. So that would be my dream. Be next. It's the only one that we work with a lot that we haven't had any success, so. Cool. Well, it's good to have dreams. It is, <laughs> most of my life is dreams. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much. Thanks for the tour. Yeah, this has absolutely. been such a lovely day. You are a wonderful guest. Thank you, Lindsay Van Sand. And thank you listeners for being such wonderful, curious people. We will talk with you next week. Next week on the Here We Are podcast, I'm going to be talking with Tesha Marshik, talking about educational psychology, lifespan development, adolescent development, motivation, developmental psychology. Guys, if you haven't had a chance to watch Psychonautics, a comics exploration of psychedelics, my documentary about me, about psychedelic research, about my personal psychedelic journey, please check it out. It's on Amazon Prime. It's free. Go on there and write a review. Go everywhere and write a review. That helps me out so much. And so I would really appreciate it if you did that. I would also appreciate it if you guys spread the word about stand-up science for me by the time you're hearing this should have some more dates on the calendar heading back up the east coast and then booking shows from boston kind of up across the um the north making my way heading back to wisconsin for thanksgiving and then going to be heading straight south in early december then i think maybe a a little west coast tour 
after that. Um, so keep checking back. We've been adding stuff pretty last minute. I had my my manager left management, and so I've been doing all the booking with the help of my my assistant, and so getting her up to speed on all of that. And it's been really, really overwhelming. But I say I, I only say that just because things are now getting booked really fast so i don't even have cities to plug for you because they're not all confirmed yet so you can always go to shanemoss.com you can always check out if, if you go under the contact there's my mailing list there it puts in your zip code so when i'm in your zip code you get an email from me that's the only email that you'll ever get from me is when i'm in your area so i don't i don't have monthly newsletters or anything like that that i spam people with so check that out if you like and the shows themselves the behind the scenes the booking and everything has been um a bit of a nightmare lately um just just behind and everything lot lot of work lots lots of hours but the shows themselves make it worth it the shows have been so much fun they're only getting better getting a more and more of a sense of of what subject matter works really well in this environment um, getting better as a host, figuring out what comics do really well, and it's been such a blast, even though I, I did like 10 of them with a, the longest cold that I've ever had. I still had a, a great time, sold out many of the shows, pretty much packed the rest, and really even, even the two shows where lately where the turnout wasn't quite what I was hoping it would be even those were tons of fun so it's it's getting to be a pretty darn consistently darn good show I am quite proud of it and it seems people are getting pretty excited about it and coming back when it's coming through their area and everything so real jazzed up about that hope you get a chance to catch one of those shows sometime soon those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are, of course, my favorite.
Podcast Network.